Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino style games to choose from, you too could win life changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a world. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Autosport Podcast. We discuss how to make a bad Formula One car, focusing on the 1993 Lola T93 30. Successful Formula One cars hold an unusual fascination, not least because so often their stories go untold. In this edition of the Autosport Podcast, we're going to discuss how a Grand Prix car can go bad and why. I'm your host, Ed Straw, and joining me to relive what I'm sure was a very difficult season with the Lola T93-30, run by Scuderia Italia in F1 back in 1993, is an engineer who's had a long and very successful career in motorsport, Mark Williams. And I have to say, all credit to you, because there's all sorts of things we could have talked about, all the successes we could have hauled you in for, but we're talking about something that, that didn't go well. So uh, thank you for being willing to, uh, to revisit it. My pleasure, Ed. Um, and, and when you look back at that, I mean, is it, is it uh, one of those bad seasons that you look back and think, oh, I don't want to have to go through that sort of thing again? I've been involved in two bad cars. The first Formula 3000 we did at Lola, the 9050, and also the 93 Formula 1 car. And I think both cars teach you a huge amount. I think at the end of the day, when you're winning, about the only thing you learn is how to smile. That's very true. And actually, it's one of the reasons why I have a fascination with bad Formula One cars. It probably started off when I was much younger, just finding them quite funny. But actually, um, 
you do learn about what happens even on the outside. You can learn about how these cars go wrong. Nobody sets out to make a bad car. Very few of the bad cars involve people who aren't competent. There's a few harebrained schemes in the history, but most of them are good people, good potential, but just just don't come together for some reason. So that's why it's interesting to delve into a car like this that's uh, that's often forgotten. Now, also joining me is, is Kevin Turner. Are you feeling as enthusiastic about bad F1 cars as I am? I don't think anyone is as enthusiastic about bad F1 cars as, as you are, Ed, but I think it'll be it'll be fascinating. I've had the pleasure of spending quite a lot of time with Mark over the last few years and various stories, and um, I think um, I'm looking forward to hearing the uh, the insights that, uh, that he's uh, going to provide. It's often forgotten now that what was called the Lola BMS Scuderia Italia team went into 93 amid high expectations, certainly on the outside. Scuderia Italia was established as a, a capable F1 team. It had a couple of podiums with Dallara machinery in, in previous years. Lola was a hugely successful manufacturer at the time. Only a few years earlier produced the LC90 that LaRousse team took to a podium finish, sixth in the championship. Now, Eric Broadley, um, the late owner of, uh, of, of Lola, he described the alliance as creating a new power in F1 and he was talking about it becoming a top team. Mark, did it feel like the start of something really positive when it, when it first came together during 92? It did, because we didn't realise which season Eric was talking about. So there was a, uh, the first meeting, and there was a production engineer, Tony Woods, myself and Eric, and probably Mike Blanchet, and we were just discussing the project. And it soon became apparent that we all thought we had a year to go, and this was a 94-season car, and Eric was talking about 93. And Tony Woods stood up and said, Eric, you're absolutely mad, and I'm not going to do it. And he left the room. So he employed another production engineer to make the project happen. And he said, I'm not doing it because I think you're all mad. Which is quite interesting where one of the directors of the business says, you're all mad. (laughs) But of course, as engineers, we were just excited at the thought of getting back into Formula One. And when I discussed it with Eric, he made a very valid point. He said, we've been running race cars on bump rubbers and springs for a long time now. And it's all a bit dull. Active ride, that's what we're going to get into. And that was his whole motivation for doing it, was to have a platform to play with active ride. And so this would have been, when, when you were having first discussion, so was that in the middle of 92? Because the official announcement was kind of mid-92 mid about, about this team being created. And we should say, all the, all the hyperbole and talk about it was that it was, it was more than just what Scuderia Italia had before with Dallara, which was a more straightforward chassis supply deal. This was kind of a joint venture, wasn't it, with Scuderia? Italia and Lola. So, so what, what was the timeline in terms of when you first started talking about it? I, I went to the Imola race to have a look at their Dallara and to have a look at the team. I'm trying to think when that would have been. That would have been early in the season, so probably April, April yes. time, I guess. So things were, were starting, but obviously we had no... Uh, the deal wasn't done. And I think when the deal was done, it was probably middle of the year, and we figured we had about six months to get this car up and running. That was when we realised we didn't actually have 18 months to get the car up and running, which would have actually been perfect. Because after we finished the, the LaRousse car, which was our previous Formula One uh, success story for Lola, we hadn't continued any following of Formula One. So we hadn't kept a car in the wind tunnel, we hadn't really kept abreast of the regulations. So suddenly, there we were, faced with going back into Formula One with no knowledge. So obviously, there's a lot of research that has to go on to find out where it's all at. And then you have to make a start. And when you've only got six months to turn a car around, it has to be pretty basic, simple and straightforward. And that's what we were faced with. 
And, and Formula One moves quickly at the best of times, isn't it? But back then you had all the gizmos and things going on as well. So it was even more to, to get your head around. I think that's one of the reasons why we chose to do uh, a fairly straightforward car. And we based it pretty much on the Formula 3000 car at the time. Obviously, we had to find another 110 litres worth of fuel capacity. So we had to stretch it somewhat. Plus the engine, the Ferrari V12, yep. was, was a big lump in those days, wasn't it? And quite heavy. But we can talk about that later because there's some interesting stuff that we can probably uh, talk, talk about towards the end of that. Um, I mean, it had its challenges and there was a lot of novel stuff that we did to get that engine installed. One of the things that springs to mind is um, bolting the engine on the back of the chassis. So the chassis is quite wide because you don't want to make the car overly long, but you've got to get all this fuel in, some 240 litres, I think we were playing with at the time. And I said to Eric, this is going to be a challenge because the mountings are going to be inside the face of the rear of the monocoque. He goes, yeah, that's a bit tricky. Hmm. Thought about it for a while and said, I tell you what, let's put some carbon tubes through the fuel cell. Never seen that done before. And that's what we did. So there's lots of super novel stuff in this car that unless you've been involved with it or read the book, you're not going to know about. And just to put a bit of context in terms of the, the, the number of people working on this, what, what was your role and, and how many people were actually putting this car together ahead of the season? We had a lot of people. The only way we could get it done in that short time was to absolutely flood it with staff. And Lola, of course, had quite a few staff at that time. We could so pull could off other projects and we actually employed a lot of people who had contracted before. I think I was running a design team of about 20 people which at the time was unheard of. I think when I was doing Formula 3000, there were three of us designing, and we'd probably pick up a couple of contractors for detailing, so maybe five or six people max to do a Formula 3000 car. And here we were with 20 people. But without those 20 people, it wasn't going to happen. And we had a great guy in charge of production who was employed by Tony, who would come round and, abs- and measure the size of the billet of the piece you were making while it was on the drawing board so we could get it ordered before you'd even finished detailing it. And that was the only way we could get it done. Everything was running in parallel. Stuff was arriving before the drawing was finished, but you knew you could machine it out of that piece of aluminium, titanium, whatever. It was the only way it could be done. Did the experience of the first F3000 car come to mind? Because you mentioned that as the other problematic car, and I think that when we've spoken about that before, you said that Eric didn't give you an awful lot of time to do that car either. So did, did memories come flooding back at that point? I wish they had, because then I probably would have done a Tony and said, Eric, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do it. Because in hindsight, I probably should have done. But you're always optimistic about these things. You know, I think it must be like childbirth. You know, Why would women have two children? The first one is agony, but they go and have another one and some have even more. Maybe this is a bit the same. You just remember the good things about the cars you did and you never remember the bad things. Uh, and in terms of uh, putting that car together, obviously you've got just the challenge of, of creating one. But in terms of the work you could do on the on the aero, etc., obviously very different compared to now with the amount of work that goes into it. I presume you went into that knowing the car was going to be pretty basic and it was kind of right, this is a starting point, let's get a car that fundamentally is is sensibly laid out and we can we can build on so i presume you weren't thinking it was going to be a a a brilliant car straight out straight out the box it was a a baseline wasn't it i would agree with that you um you try and keep it straightforward and something you can adapt but one of the key things when you're designing a car is to get the chassis right 
And I was worried because Eric said, I'll do the chassis, you handle everything else. And that's because he's very much a stylist. And he always would say to me, Mark, your cars are so ugly. And I go, yes, Eric, but they're quick because they're designed in the wind tunnel and to the regulations. They look ugly, but they deliver downforce. And that's what wins races. Was Eric was very much, why can't I have both? I wanted to look beautiful. So when I saw him sitting in the Formula 3000 monocoque and not quite fitting, I thought this isn't a good sign because he's going to start making it bigger, particularly under the driver's legs, which is an area that you need to free up. And you do need to design the size zero chassis because you can always add bodywork to it to make it bigger. You can't suck it in. You're committed. And the first thing you need to get off the drawing board is your monocoque because that's a long lead item pattern making, all it all takes a long time. Moulds, it's probably your longest lead item. So you have to get that right first. So we ploughed into this and got it up and running. We didn't have a wind tunnel model at this time. And I remember the team coming to visit us and asking us how the wind tunnel project was going, which I took immediately as an excuse to start one. And then, so I got on and organised and started building the wind tunnel model. And then I got told off that there was nothing in the budget for this. I said, well, we can't build a car without having put it in the tunnel. So reluctantly, they allowed me to continue and build the wind tunnel model, which, of course, is running alongside the car design. But the car design is leading the wind tunnel model, which is completely the opposite way to what you want to do. So the, the, the car, the wind tunnel model, did go in the tunnel before the car hit the ground. This is fair to say, but not by a lot. And I remember we were at Cranfield running the model and Eric phoned me up and he said, how's it going? And I go, well, it's good and it's bad. We've met our drag target, but we're about 30% of the downforce we need to get the job done. Because we'd done some elementary simulation, which was very elementary in those days. And we'd come up with some targets that we'd need to be competitive. Now, we weren't going to hit those targets in this timescale because those are the targets that we thought would put us on the front of the grid. And we're not going to be there. Let's be realistic. But to only be 30% of the way there, that's a disaster. An absolute disaster. So when the car ran, we knew it was going to be an uphill struggle from that day. So the point where, obviously it's difficult to remember the, the precise timelines, the car first ran in kind of the middle of February. So the first wind tunnel, you're talking kind of January time? Yes, something like that. Okay, so no, not really much time to... No time to react. Because by then you're committed. There's very little you can do. You know, maybe you could, you, you're still about to make the mirrors, so there's something you could change there, but that's about it. So at that point, we knew where we were. We knew we were in trouble. Eric went off and worked with the car, and we got into the season. I came back, and then we'd done the design of the car, so we switched full-time into wind tunnel because we knew we had to do an upgrade. And all our effort was then on the wind tunnel program. Oh, and obviously, Eric wanted to do some suspension work because whenever you have a slow car, Eric tries to make it feel a bit better by doing a lot of geometry stuff. Which, as we know from one of your previous Autosport engineering columns, doesn't gain you lap time. It doesn't. It <laughs> makes your driver feel better. But um, many, many years later, when I was working on the McLaren GT program, one of the companies tendering for it was run by... Alberetto's engineer at the time, Alessandro Mariani. Oh, okay. And when I went over to see him uh, about the GT project, 
Obviously, we talked a lot about this project over lunch. <laughs> and he said to me, they knew from the first test they were in trouble because they went out, did a short run, came in, and he said, Algretto called me over. I put my head in the cockpit and he said, we are stuffed. I think he was probably a bit more expletive. And at that point, he said, I knew this was going to be hard. I mean, our view, to be honest, when the project was first put forward by Eric was, why don't they run the Delara for another year? Because we'll never be able to provide a competitive car in time because we can't do the background research, the wind tunnel work that we need to do to be competitive. They'll be better off running their old car. But Eric was so desperate to get into Formula One again because he knew that's where you had to be. And he was absolutely right. That was the future. I must say, there's some interesting echoes there because this desperation for Lolo to get into Formula One, perhaps a, a year earlier than Wise, also played a part in the, the subsequent, the final Lolo oh, from Project in 97, which I'm digressing a bit I there. Mean, but it's just funny that that's the same mistake. It's exactly the same mistake. And you would think after the experience in 93 that Eric would have been more forewarned, forearmed, and been able to... You'd have come out of this project saying, what are we going to do now? Is we going to keep a track of Formula One? We're going to see what the regulations are doing. We're going to see how they affect the aerodynamics. We'll probably put a tunnel, uh, a model in the tunnel, you know, a couple of days a month, just to see where Formula One's at, because we know that's where we need to be. So that when we finally get a project, at least we've got something on the table that we can build. But no, that never happened. So it was basically repeated. And when it came to running that car early in the season, you mentioned Alberto's reaction. You also had Luca Padoa, who then was an F3000 champion, a very fast young driver. So actually, you had a good, strong driver line up there on paper. And also, one of the criticisms of Scuderia Italia previously was it didn't have the best development drivers, but in Alberto, they had an experienced guy. So they I mean, so it was kind of very, very quickly you realised how bad it was. Because if you look at the, the kind of average performance over the year, the Lola is kind of off the back. There were, I think there were three races where the car was slightly quicker than someone else. I think Tyrrell a couple of times and Minardi on one occasion. So I guess you already knew it was going to be very difficult and you were going to be at the back. But was it a surprise quite how bad it was? I think after we knew where we stood aerodynamically, no. Um. I think one of the problems is that and where we actually let the team down was we didn't just focus solely on that. So Eric was doing his geometry, going and doing setup work, very old school stuff. I was doing the wind tunnel program, trying to feed some stuff forwards. But what we should have done is put everybody on that because that was the elephant in the room. That's what we should have been doing. And we didn't. One of the things seen referenced about that car, it kept being called undrivable. I think Alberto used that word. It's not especially easy to find footage of it, but watching, I think there's some YouTube footage of Alberetto on a qualifying that, and you can see that turn in sort of moment that the car wasn't, it wasn't just a, a sort of fine low downforce car. It did seem to have some real instability, and I presume that's rear instability because you're having that kind of two bites of, of turn in. Um, I think it's also a driver pushing beyond what the car's capable of doing. Okay. And I think, you know, his commitment was phenomenal. Both of their commitments was phenomenal. We had this curious situation, didn't you? Because there originally there were going to be 28 cars on the grid. March folded. There were 26 cars. And then you ended up with this slightly strange situation where only 25 could qualify. So often there was this private qualifying battle, which I guess was a bit counterproductive as well, if you had Alberetto and Badoa very often being the ones. It wasn't always then, but usually. I think missing out. It, is, it is a problem where you have a situation like that. I think the drivers gave as much as they could. I think the team did a fantastic job running the car. 
uh, to extract what they could from it. I mean, it was challenging because I remember going to a test. and I think it was at Magello. Magello. And I think we, had, we spent more time changing engines because they were mopping up mileage. So we got very little testing done. It's like, well, you can do 15 laps and then the engine's got to come out. Two hours downtime. Right, what's the new engine going to give me? Well, we might get 20 laps out of that one. And then we've got to put another engine in. So they were basically mopping up engines. And if you went over, it was a big problem, obviously. So we got very little testing done. But to be honest, it was lacking downforce. And that's why it was so difficult to drive. So was the rate of development slower than it? should have been or could have been as well or was it or was it just going to be a disaster from the start and it was always damage limitation from there yes and i think um because we weren't all focusing on the real issue the fact that we had no downforce there was there was a lot of effort going into other aspects and, and john Rogers, i think if memory serves me correctly we had 15 or 16 front rear geometry variations which is absolutely completely pointless you know, it's going to make the car feel different, but it isn't going to find you any lap time. But that wastes effort. And I do remember that um, when I parted company with Eric at the end of the year, he said, the reason I'm going to fire you is because you didn't stop me playing. Even though he's the boss. I know. But I said, Eric, you're the boss. If you want to do all that work, it's your train set. Meanwhile, I'm in the tunnel trying to find downforce. That's how it works. It's, it's interesting that because um, Mario Andretti says a similar story about Eric with the first Newman Haas uh, Lola Indycar, doesn't he? Where it basically was fundamentally aerodynamically not right and they just kept messing about with geometries. And I think Newman Haas at the end did, did some of their own tweaks. Obviously, the 84 car was really good. We talked about that before as well. But yeah, Eric obviously had a little bit of a, an obsession with geometries. I think if you look at where he started in racing when cars had lift rather than downforce. Geometry made a significant difference to how your car handled, how you presented the tyres, what the driver felt of it. And he was an expert in this field, and that's where he'd learnt what geometry does for you. But the world had moved on. And there were times when Eric knew the world had moved on. I remember, as you say, the 84 IndyCar, because I did a lot of the wind tunnel development, with Tony Sicali would come over from the States, to be Eric and myself and Nigel Bennett, all in the tunnel, developing the car. And we were finding a lot of downforce. And Eric was always exceedingly happy when we'd leave the tunnel with a load more downforce than we arrived and would treat us to a nice slap-up meal at his favourite Chelsea restaurant. So he knew that downforce was important. And that car was phenomenally successful because it had good downforce. It was a solid car with good downforce. But then we can do this and be doing geometry. And that's what always puzzled me. But as I said, Eric, it's your train set. It's Whatever like you want to do. It's almost like it's his default setting. I Once you can so, show yeah. him some numbers, oh, we've got this X amount more downforce. Brilliant, let's, let's go for that. But then when that's not there, it's sort of default back to what he, what he knew. But in, to his credit, he knew the company needed to be in Formula 1. He, he knew that what was the direction that the company needed to head in. And he grasped every opportunity that came along to take him there. And in that sense, he was absolutely right. What he couldn't do is leave the geometry behind. And I remember um, many years later when I was at McLaren, I was having lunch with Martin Whitmarsh. And he said, how do you think the, the new Lola's going to go? And I said, Martin, when you see it in the pit lane, 
have a look at the gearbox. And if it's riddled with tapped holes for geometry development, I wouldn't worry very much. <laughs> Ongoing problems then, isn't it? It's the same, the same, uh, the same weaknesses. And um, I mean, talk, talking of the arrow, what actual progress has made during the season? Was there anything significant? I mean, if you take the starting point as that being thirty percent of what you need to be at the front, how much was that? Was there any step changes, or was it always just at a similar level? I don't think there was. I, it's hard for me to remember that far back, to be honest. But I do remember that people would say, "Gosh, isn't it a big car?" because I think it just looked large. And everybody has this idea that large cars are slow. I'm not quite sure why. So I remember one test where it went over, and he was so fed up of them saying this, he took a bone saw to the, to the um, engine cover and reduced it in size. <laughs> just scientific. To, just to prove it didn't make any difference, uh, which is very good of him to do that. But he came back and said, you know what, we might have to make that engine cover because it will look more beautiful. <laughs> and then people will stop nagging us because a slow, pretty car attracts less criticism. The only thing is, though, because although there was this backing from Chesterfield, the car, I always found the car delivery quite amazing, this sort of flame effect, because I, I never thought it looked very good. It always looked like looked to me like, you know when you get, uh, when people produce model racing cars and it's kind of called a formula car and they put and it's unlicensed, they put a random livery on it. It <laughs> always looked like one of those, didn't it, in terms of the... Well, so I, think, I don't think it's ever going to be a particularly beautiful car. No, and I think, sadly, like some of that was, was Eric could sit in this car. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, he was carrying a little bit of success ballast. So at the end of the day, it, it, it wasn't the smallest car that it could have been. Um, and I think it's essential to design a small car because you can always add bodywork to fill areas out as necessary what you can't do is suck them in and I think Eric's right if you design a very pretty car people give you a little bit of a stay of execution if it doesn't quite perform for you to get your act together and upgrade it the trouble with aerodynamic upgrades is they take a long time there's the 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 model bits you have to design and build you have to test them in the wind tunnel you then have to transfer them to full size you then have to make them huge time delay Meanwhile, everybody's champing at the bit and there's a race every few weeks. It's, a, it's not a very nice position to be in. Well, appropriately enough, we're going to take a brief pause to talk about another bad Grand Prix car. We're going to go to the world of IGP Manager, where the Autosport team is continuing to struggle, rather like the 1993 Lola Formula One project, but we're hopeful we will endure and we will start to unlock the potential. This, of course, is IGP Manager, which is available to download on iOS and Android, also available on browser. If you have a look, there's a sign-up link in the show information for the podcast, so you'll be able to click through there and get your team going. Well, we went to Spain, and the results have improved. A 13th place finish. Uh, steady improvement, slow, not spectacular, but uh, yeah, out of the points, still learning. It wasn't great. We had a little bit of a struggle in a in a wet, dry race. It wasn't ideal. We didn't start on the right tyres. We were pretty close uh, to making a move for, for 12th place, but the fuel management was a bit of a problem and had to, had to back off. So uh, that wasn't very good right at the end of the race. We were struggling a little bit. And of course, when you get wet races, you can go longer without refueling. Of course, in IGP, it's based on refueling Grand Prix racing. So that adds an interesting strategic element. We are quite pleased with the top speed, though. We had the fifth highest top speed in the race, which does sound a little bit like we're desperately clutching on something, but at least shows that even if the car hasn't got downforce, it's reasonably aerodynamically efficient. So that's something. We're going to continue to invest in things 
off track, of course, we have regular polls on social media on our Twitter account at Autosport where we get you to vote for what we should invest in, which aspect of the car. Of course, when it comes to development rather than specific parts, you're looking at general characteristics to work on rather like a, a driver would say, I want my car to do this. Of course, drivers want the cars to do everything. So we're struggling that with our driver. We think he can go a little bit quicker. So we're learning. We're getting a little bit better. We've got another race coming up in, in Monaco imminently. So hopefully we'll be able to uh, to move one more step towards the top ten. We're confident we'll be able to score some points as the season progresses. But the first five races, yeah, thirteenth places, I must admit, our best result. But everybody's working hard as a team. We're better off perhaps than Williams are in in reality. So that's something we are able to race with and beat people. So we'll we'll take some solace from that, or at least in the spread. But uh, yeah, the determination in the team is is growing it's great when you can see the the improvements in the car as you as you spend money in your credits to actually get some uh, get some investment on certain characteristics so i think we need to get a little bit more downforce on the car because of course downforce is king as far as performance goes so we go on to monaco with with some confidence and uh, and yeah i hope that uh, i hope that we're gonna we're gonna make some gains we're not gonna get bogged down in fiddling with suspension geometries and that kind of thing that's that's for sure we're really going to focus on that that downforce because arrow is everything so download our GP Manager on iOS and Android. Do use our sign-up link. Of course, you can play it in browser as well, and you can be managing your own Grand Prix team. And I must say, very, very addictive it's becoming. Not getting a good result, which we haven't had yet, is uh, it's, it's hurting. So, uh, yeah, the, the motivation is high in the Autosport team. And now we can turn our attention back to the 1993 Lola. Now, in the background, there was all uh, the... the the, the long-term future of the team was was starting to to unravel kind of in the middle of the season you already get slightly before the middle of the season you're getting rumors about a possible merger with Minardi and eventually there was a merger with Minardi and it was largely basically just it was more Minardi than than uh than than Scuderia Italia Lola that came together so at what point did you know things were going wrong there and what impact did that have because I have seen references to there being a plan to be a, a new car during the season I don't know if that's true and eventually it's said that what scotched that was when Ferrari refused to do a new deal for 94. So it's interesting to see whether what was reported at the time has any any reflection on, on what actually happened. I think within six months, we pretty much had a new design of car. That's fair to say. Because we'd done a, a pretty good wind tunnel program. And I'm trying to think how much downforce we'd found. But say we'd got to 50% of what, or 60% of what you needed, which is pretty impressive. But then you tend to make the big gain, gains early on. It's then finding the next 30 or 40%. That's tough. But that certainly would have been enough to put it in among the... Oh, absolutely. So I, I'm pretty sure we were at 50 or 60% of our target. Bearing in mind the target's moving all the time because other people aren't standing still. But it would have made a massive uh, inroad into the performance of the car. And that car was on the board and, and ready to go. Would that have been for 94 or was that for... That the, was really going to be for, for 94. But you could have... Because fundamentally you had to change the chassis. Because that's the key to unlocking your performance. So it's really a 94 chassis. I mean, you could have pulled some bits off, peripheral stuff, but it's never going to be as effective because you don't have the chassis to support it. And I remember at some point, Eric went to a test at Monza... And Ferrari were testing, and they brought their new engine to that test for themselves. Bearing in mind, we're running uh, a previous model in this car. And they put the new engine in, they went out, they went a second a lot quicker. And I'm told at that point, Eric closed his briefcase and left for the airport. 
on the basis that, hang on a minute, they've just bolted a second onto that Ferrari car. And our engine isn't even at the level that the one they took out is at. So we could go considerably quicker if we had that engine. And at that point, then, he lost interest. So what went on behind the scenes, I have no idea. But in terms of, of you know, working on the project, he really lost interest at that point. So at what point did you you know as a design team that you weren't going to be making the 94 car? Did that How, how far down the road to, of doing that were you before it got canned? That's a very good question. I mean, I left the business in December. And I know that the next car that came through was based on a lot of the work we've done. But I never was involved in it. Uh, just looking back at the, the coverage at the time, it seems to be kind of towards the end of the season, once you get into kind of August time, you're getting confirmation that the talks were there with, with Scuderia Italia. And of course, this car stopped running, didn't do the last two races, uh, Japan and Australia, I guess, for, for money-saving reasons. So I guess that was it. The, <laughs> the yes, I, th- I, I seem to remember lots of discussions and, and stuff going on, but the actual detail... To be honest, I was trying to sort out an engineering problem. So you try and just ignore that and hope that it's going to be sorted out because what will sort all these things out is performance. So that's what, as an engineer, you have to focus on. You get the performance, a lot of these other problems just walk away. I think I'm right in saying, despite what you mentioned about the interest in active ride, there was never active ride on that car, was there? I did see references to a traction control system appearing towards the end of the season, but not where it came from or no we, we we started looking at it and we were looking at um actuators and the control system and all that stuff and i found that particularly interesting because that was a whole new area that we'd not been involved in before putting hydraulics on race cars and and, and it was a super exciting time but we it was just a paper study we never got beyond the paper study to be honest. and also um connected to that there was the interesting situation within canada when they ruled traction control and active active ride legal so there was a brief point where where your cars were the only ones uh considered the only ones legal it was all part of it It was never going to kind of go that way but there was that brief amusing moment when actually canada you had, you had the only uh the, the only uh <laughs> legitimate cars shall we say which i guess was a amusing, a uh, amusing side yes. <laughs> i mean to be honest the car the car was uncompetitive agreed but i felt the design was a good design nothing ever failed as far as I can remember. The car was under the weight limit when it was delivered, which I think is good. Um, so at least we'd made that target. But you're never going to make up for a lack of downfalls. It's just well, it's, not possible. It's, it's interesting looking at the performance profile over the season, just purely based on the, the fastest laps, just to show you're sort of not making it up. You know, If you look at the, the weak races, Spain was very poor, 8.3% off the pace, Silverstone 9.1%, Hungary 9.2% down. But then the stronger races, I mean, they said you met the drag targets, so Monza was quite strong. Alberto wasn't a million miles away. Had he finished from being able to, he might well have been able to nab a point in that race with the, with the attrition. So Hockenheim was the was the strongest overall 4.6% off so the the shape of the pace of the car entirely supports what you're what you're claiming should we say it's probably also worth mentioning though that that because those percentages to get to put them into into context i mean now those percentages would be huge you'd be twice two or three times off of off of the back than the back person would be off of pole but in those days that wasn't the case um, we've been looking a bit at our super times, this judgment of raw pace that Ed and I like to talk about occasionally. Um, and 93 
in terms of the gap between first and second, so that'd be Williams and I suspect probably McLaren coming at the top of my head. And uh and first and fifth um were big both of those figures were bigger than they had been uh since the nineteen fifties. So that was a it was a really big spread of of the grid from back to from back to front. So it wasn't as though that you were just <laughs> it wasn't just that the Lola was off the back of a really tight field. It was more spread because, I guess, of all this cutting-edge gizmos and electronics and all the rest of it. Well, it's interesting as well. If you look at this year, Williams is 3.58% off the pace based on its fastest single lap, slowest car of this year. That would have put it fourth in 1993. <laughs> actually, uh, actually, uh, sorry, uh, fifth, sorry, between Ferrari and, and Sauber. Sauber was the strongest of the midfielders in its, uh, in its first year on pace. So that, that says a lot about the very different worlds and actually the gap between a small f1 team then and a big one then was huge um, people, i mean it is it is big now but even a even the smallest f1 team has a has a vast staff and you talk about having 20 people you know, yeah, which at that, the time we thought was was incredible to have that many people on a project because we would offer i look back to the heydays of those, we'd be running maybe three projects a group c project indycar and former 3000 and each team would probably be about six people and they did everything. You you did. Most of them would probably go race engineering at events, uh, managing the wind tunnel program and designing and drawing the parts. You did absolutely everything because that was the level of competition where the game was at. And it's now just moved on and you can't do that anymore. Should we do a little bit of a, a what if? Let's say the project continued with Scuderia Italia with Lola into 94 of course in 94 there were significant rule changes going into the season with the gizmos being banned and then of course there were significant changes in season as well following the uh, the deaths of Ertensen and Roland Ratzenberger at Imola do you think that given ongoing financial support this partnership had the potential to to at the very least become a the level we expected of that team sort of a handy good midfielder or even even go beyond I mean I know funding can go a long way but the if the funding continued at a sensible level? I think so. I think it could have done because as you start to improve, things always spiral up and you attract more people to your programme and that all just has a nice reinforcing effect and you can then learn from what other people are doing because when you come into a series cold, um, you're learning for the first time. Whereas when you start to attract more people and your staff grows, those people have worked for other teams and you learn more bits of information and that then spirals you up the grid. Do you think the 94 rule changes would have helped in the basis that there was technology there that you then for didn't have to develop? I mean, it really, perhaps it's the other way around. It hurt Williams, didn't it? Because they had a car built around active rides and all the rest of it. And then the, the 94 car to start with, was, the passive car was, was a nightmare. Um, so would that in itself have helped a, a lower end or mid, mid, middle, midfield team? It's an interesting point. And I, I tell you what's going through my mind at the moment is that you have a racing car that has no active ride. You then put active ride on it. You've got platform control. You can avoid all the areas of the aeromap that aren't very nice. And suddenly everybody's happy. It's very drivable. It's quicker. Great job. Then somebody says, do you know what? We could push it harder make more areas we don't want to go into, but we can avoid them very easily. It's a bit like aircraft are built for stability. And then when you fly them by a computer, you can build them for instability because then they react quicker. Maybe that's not a great analogy, but you can see where I'm heading. Well, that's the, how Eurofighter was, was, was designed, wasn't it? 
So you have a race car, and I think that was where Williams were at, that was designed for platform control, which when suddenly you then got um, a passive car, what do you do? You're challenged. And okay, they did some redevelopment, uh, new floor, bits and bobs, and then the thing became competitive again quite quickly because they recognized that it was a step too far and you couldn't run that without active ride. So would other teams just coming in like Lola have benefited? I think we were doing it because it sounded like fun, <laughs> to be honest. It was an area that we could get into and exploit and learn a lot about our car. What worries me with hindsight is that around this time, the wind tunnel at Cranfield that Lola were using was problematic. When we first went there, great tunnel, um, lovely bit of history in terms of obviously what it had been used for prior. And they didn't want to destroy that history. So we used to wheel the entire rolling road into the tunnel and it used to sit above the floor of the tunnel. And they said, well, actually, racing car people are using this all the time now. We, we don't need to be able to go back to running planes. We'll cut the bottom out and we'll put the road in from underneath. It'll be much better for servicing, belt changes. Uh, what do you think? And everybody agreed to this. So that was put in. Unfortunately, it then inherited a boundary layer issue, which we didn't spot for a long time. And I remember being there where one of the guys said, I'm awfully sorry, Mark, but the, um, the boundary layer's tripped. So your last few runs are worthless. We're going to have to repeat them. And then we did a test, bandolier on, bandolier off. And there was no change in the results. Alarm bells. At that point, you know you've got a bandolier problem. So how much of the cars that we were developing then that we thought were going to be successful would have been because of those issues? Well, you've, I mean, we talked about this um, when we celebrated Lola early in the year, didn't we? Obviously, F3000, you won it in nineteen ninety. But the 91 and 2 cars were suffered from that problem. And eventually, uh, the IndyCar did as well, didn't it? After Mansell's 93 title, Lola hit a bit of a rocky patch there as well. And it all goes back to that. I think it all goes, goes I think it, it all stems from that period. Dropping the floor in the tunnel basically put the company out of business, if you look at it that way. Because you just lose faith, you lose sales, you lose revenue. I remember um, sending the 91 car into Japan. And the uh, importer coming back to the UK saying, um, we've sorted the car out. It wasn't very good when you delivered it, but we've put last year's floor on and now it's a babe. And I go, but that can't be right. And I pulled out the wind tunnel error maps for the two cars. And I said, look how much more downforce we've got with, with the current car. How can you go back to that and be quicker? Because we didn't realize that actually it was a work of fiction. This isn't what we actually owned. And that being flat bottom cars at the time was hitting them first. I think the Indy car was saved by the stepped bottom rule, but only a short stay of execution. I think it's probably just worth explaining for those who aren't so familiar with, with wind tunnels when you say a boundary layer issue, exactly what you what you mean, just in terms of sort of the, oh, the, the okay. first principles of it. So what happens is the air comes through the uh, contraction section ahead of the model. Um, it's obviously running on the walls, the ceiling and the floor. And it gradually builds up and becomes thicker and thicker. And what you have just before the rolling road is a gauze where you suck off this build-up of air. So then the nice free air goes back down, attaches to the belt and runs along the belt. So you're mimicking reality. 
If your suction is failing, you're not sucking all that nasty boundary layer out of the air and you're allowing it to build up. So what happens is you've got a false velocity profile along the floor of the tunnel that's affecting noticeably the lowest part of the car first, which is going to be your flat bottom. And then it's your front wing. And when I looked back at our results, we used to be able to tune the pitch sensitivity of the car with front wing shape, profile and angle. And we suddenly lost the ability to do this. And we'd headed completely the wrong way. We'd raised the front wing up to get better results. And if you look at the 92 Formula 3000 car, you'll see that it ran after it with some spacers on the front wing to drop it back down again. Because the tunnel told us to go up, the track told us to go down. So it was all starting to come together, but because we're not aerodynamic experts, we're not tunnel specialists, these mistakes happen. And it wasn't really resolved until Chris arrived, Chris Saunders, who's a tunnel expert, who came in and said, yes, there's clearly a problem, needs fixing, by which time I'd left the business. Well, that's kind of the point, isn't it? You're all focused on making the car faster. You're kind of ex you're almost assuming that all the, the tools are right and you're just bolting in at some point somebody probably needs to stop and i mean we see it even even today you know, last year red bull had a problem in the wind tunnel as well it still it still happens even with all these people and all the money and all, all these experiences if you everyone's more and more focused on their bit you need someone to make sure that the wind tunnel's still doing the right thing as well and it's really hard because i remember we knew when when we were, i was at mclaren and we moved to 60 percent models in a small tunnel and all the non-aerodynamicists would wander in and go, hmm, tunnel looks a bit small. And all the aerodynamicists would go, what do you know? There's nothing wrong with it. The results are great. They correlate to the track. Everything's fine. Well, they did until certain aerodynamic appendages came along that meant that tunnel blockage was a big issue. And the walls were going to be too close and the ceiling was going to be too low. But because you morph into these things, you don't see them coming. Wood for the trees, really. I should know. You know, there's other examples from that period. You now, the, the famous one, Adrian Newey, when he was at, at Leighton House a few years earlier in 1990, when they had a, he was sacked basically after they failed to qualify in Mexico, and then in France, straight after they they damn near won, and it was all because that they were using a wind tunnel in Southampton that had a bowed floor. That you know, even someone like Adrian Newey doesn't know. So it's a, this wind tunnels are really complicated things, and even when they work really well, they're not. Well, my understanding, they're not brilliant simulations anyway, because obviously the real world's very, very complicated place. So, you know, it's hard enough with a with a per with a hypothetically near perfect wind tunnel, let alone when you've when you're carrying these problems. It is, and I think wind tunnel testing moves on a lot. You know, when I first started Imperial's quarter scale tunnel, all models were run straight ahead. We weren't doing your steer roll. Well, we do a bit of roll because Indy cars ran with tilt. So yes, we would tilt the model but we weren't looking at cornering conditions because it was too difficult to manage but the world's moved on and now it's incredibly complicated what people are looking at so with all this stuff to look at it's easy to miss stuff and I think if I was running a program I'd have a wind tunnel policeman who basically just sat there keeping everybody honest because at least they'd respect him whereas when a race engineer walks in and goes hmm Tunnel looks a bit small. He just gets booted out. Go away, we're busy. Well, let's digress a little bit because we talked about about the gizmos, uh, the traction control, act, suspension, all that kind of thing that have, have long since been banned. And you wrote an interesting column recently arguing for bringing these back into 
Formula One as a as a, an effective way to to make F one effectively more competitive. So perhaps you could lay out that argument because it's it's counterintuitive, isn't it? Because people assume this sort of technology is expensive and it advantages the advantages the big teams. People do. I think actually toys, gizmos, however you want to describe them, embedded code effects are actually incredibly cheap. It's only manpower, not hardware. And you can react very quickly. And the world's full of really bright people. So you've got lots of people to do the work for you. And it's another area of exploitation where now it's totally dominated by power plant and aerodynamics. So let's have something else that allows people to catch up on and have some bright ideas and try some new stuff. I mean, I look back to the days of of, um, toys and, you know, you had an idea on Monday, cracked out some code by Wednesday and tested it on Friday. That's pretty cheap, isn't it? And, okay, if only one team's doing it, you're going to pull ahead and and it's... it, it makes the gap bigger. But I think the world's moved on. I think, you know, the focus is different. There's a lot more people involved now. And it could have the effect of closing things up because it's more things that people can get wrong. How would you, well, you couldn't guarantee it, but what would make you think that the people that are going to get it most right or least wrong would be mercedes Ferrari and Red Bull, who've got the most resources, most people to throw at it? Yes, that's, that, that, that would that, be my only concern yeah. with that is that you end up with a, a reverse of the '93 '94 situation where the the lack of the gizmos closed the field up. If you were to bring them back, would, I, I would think you, it, you Mercedes more to play with, for example. I think the top teams have one of the key things they have is is as well as people. Yes, I agree. Is manufacturing resource the ability to respond quickly in whatever area needs manufacturing. And for me, that was the, always the biggest challenge when Adrian arrived at McLaren was keeping up with his ideas. I remember the production guy saying, you won't believe this, but we're three months into the year and we've run out of carbon. Yeah. We're just using it so quickly because the ideas are coming through so quickly. We're making it and we can't keep up, but we've run out of carbon. So it's manufacturing resource that puts the top teams ahead. Whereas actually, code isn't a manufacturing resource. It's just intellect. So the other teams would have more of a chance to be able to, to match him. Well, well, let's look at something that has been talked about over quite a few years in Formula 1. They keep talking about bringing back active ride. Usually the proposal is have a common system so everyone gets the same kit and then they can run it within whatever parameters. And, and you, you know, you'll know far more about that kind of technology than I do, but you can obviously restrict how, how clever it is and make it kind of an off-the-shelf part. The thing that appeals about that is a huge amount of effort in recent years goes on, particularly among the top team. It's about platform control and that kind of thing. We had the the Frick front rear interconnected suspension, which was basically outlawed a few years ago. But there's lots and lots of things that teams are having to do to do that. And being able to control the platform is crucial because if you can control the platform, exactly the same with Active Ride, you can you can do much you can do much more aero wise. So the argument there is that you're neutralising something the bigger teams can do by saying, right, you can all do this, you don't have to do any clever systems of pulleys and levers, which is a slightly strange way to characterise it, but that that gives everyone the tools to do that, and then it just comes down to how you understand it. And there'll always be, you know, the, the, the biggest teams and the best teams will always probably get the most out of it because their fundamental knowledge is better. But I guess the argument there is it neutralises other things that are more complicated. 
to it, do. It has the potential to. But I think, as Kevin's pointed out, it's if it allows you to push your aerodynamics harder and a team has a better resource for manufacturing components, then it would allow them to pull ahead. I think some other toys which might impact tyre performance might be more interesting. So traction control, that kind of thing? That sort of thing, because for me, I think drivers should be able to race flat out. You know, once you've got to the point where they're not fuel limited and you can actually run less fuel than you need, um, then you should just be able to run flat out. And time management for me isn't racing. I mean, some people might consider it to be, but to be honest, I just want to see guys go at it and the best guy win. Well, I think that that's an interesting problem that everyone's got at the moment because it obviously asked for, everyone specifically asked for tyres that, that degraded and you know, there was that race in Canada, wasn't there? So every race should be like this one. So Pirelli have been making tyres by and large that, that do that and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't but a lot of the time they get criticised for what well, the drivers are having to look after the tyres all the time. Well, fundamentally the combination of that with being so difficult to overtake you've got to have such a big delta between the pace of a car on a two-stop versus a one-stop you know sometimes you'll say oh well a two-stop is eight seconds quicker well it's like well you're going to lose way more than that behind people it, it all automatically means you're always or almost always going to go to the really conservative approach because yeah. it gives you track position and we before mark arrived we we were talking about um with f1 racing editor um, ben anderson about well let's have what you might describe as a michelin style tire where you can drive flat out the whole time um which is i think appealing from a oh we want to see the drive flat out all the time but i don't think that you would have any more overtaking you probably have less if the tires aren't degraded well that's one of the reasons that you get overtaking unless you well, can over them. overtaking is a function of Pace offset and variables. Exactly. Fundamentally. And, you're and actually you're narrowing variables. You're exactly. Really. You're reducing that. So the only way, one way around that would be, how do you make the cars easy to overtake? Which brings us back to that classic old, how do you deal with, with aero? And and I'd say probably Formula One has been struggling to deal with having too much downforce and dirty air probably since the early 90s, really. Um, well, you just run, you, the, run the races in a vacuum. That's the well, yeah. <laughs> if, you, if you look back at uh, exhaust blowing, which I thought was a fantastic era, because that was so cheap to produce downforce. You could produce nearly a season's worth of development just by using blowing. And the nice thing is, it gave you great entry stability, particularly hot blow. So there we are, we've got great entry stability, which means you can hurl the car in, you're not afraid to turn in, it's going to be stuck, and great exit performance phenomenal levels of downforce but the car sounded terrible so it got banned yeah because, they did sound bad didn't well they? <laughs> they were basically running wide open throttle and doing everything on retard and spark and that's how it worked but for me that was the cheapest development ever although certain like Cosworth argued they couldn't match what the likes of Renault were, were doing with that clearly there's a there's a, a, an engine cost because you've got to be running engines proving them out to operate under that regime and it's quite a hard, a harsh regime to be operating on. So you would be limited to the amount of 99% wide open throttle you would be allowed to run for qualifying. So there's an engine cost agreed. But in terms of uh, revising aerodynamics, yes, you could have super simple uh, aerodynamics that don't have lots of terrible flow that makes overtaking difficult. And give people the downforce back to get the lap time from blowing.
Well, we've kind of we've kind of digressed from the from the original point here, but it's been fascinating to talk about how a bad Formula One car happens, and I've certainly Mark's got a copy of the, the modern Formula One race car, uh, which is about the the '93 Lola, which uh, I'm going to be ordering a copy off uh, off eBay straight uh, straight after this. It looks like a, a really good and interesting book, but it's been great to understand a bit about what makes a bad Formula One car because it's certainly uh, it's certainly rarely a lack of ability of those involved. So thanks very much, Mark, and thanks to Kevin Turner. Uh, so please check out autosport.com for all the latest news on Formula 1 and the whole rest of the world of motorsport. Our plus subscriber area where for a small monthly fee you can read allegedly the world's best motorsport journalists. Check out sister title F1 Racing Magazine out monthly and motorsport.com. And if you fancy a flutter, download the Pit Stop Betting app. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Most footwear brands use cheaper synthetic materials, but when it comes to quality, Mother Nature knows best. Allbirds took that idea and ran with their iconic wool runners. Wool runners are made with premium supernatural materials that are comfy and durable, so you can run to the ends of the earth or just to the store. Plus, they're machine washable. This year, take a big step forward for Mother Nature with Allbirds Wool Runner. Discover your perfect pair today at allbirds.com. That's A L L B I R D S.com. Social Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday. I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather. Now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.